Hello and welcome to the Alex Waters Show. And today's uh, episode, I've got with me Dr. Stephen Bright. Welcome, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, Stephen is a psychologist, ethnopharmacologist, uh, founding member and vice president of PRISM, which is a not-for-profit organization that aims to fund positive alcohol and other drug research and is also a senior lecturer of addiction at Edith Cowan University in Perth. First question I have for you is actually, what's the difference between a doctor and a professor? How do you get that title? So a doctor means that you have a PhD or if you're a medical doctor in Australia, technically the award of being, you know, the status of being doctor is something that is given to them when they graduate. They don't actually have a doctorate per se. I used to work as a manager of an AOD service and the addiction medicine specialist there that was a medical doctor when I got my PhD said oh now we've got a real doctor because in fact they don't do a doctorate when you do medicine right (laughs) and then the difference between um, doctor and professor is just promotion basically so it goes lecturer senior lecturer associate professor professor ah okay right maybe one day soon then (laughs) (laughs) one one day possibly yeah when I was preparing I I just kept mixing up I'm like is he a professor or a doctor because I I just assumed you know most lecturers were were called a professor of some kind so there you go so we're here to talk about uh, you know a lot about psychedelics and the research that's happening at the moment which is obviously a big part of your work how did you get into this field of work and sort of doing what you do now and maybe you can describe what you do now well i i got into psychology because at 22 i wasn't sort of happy with the job i had and was looking for a change and i was interested in working with people experiencing problems with alcohol and other drugs because i'd experienced some of that in my personal life and so grew up in Geraldton, moved down to perth to study and then i went on to do a master's in clinical psychology phd and while i was doing my phd i had the opportunity to start teaching addiction studies at curtin university they had some units there and basically I moved to Melbourne because my PhD scholarship ran out I was doing some contract work with a company uh, as a psychologist and I said to them look I need a full-time job I might be shooting myself in the foot here but either you know if you've got something I would be open to taking it and they offered me a job in Melbourne so I packed up the car and drove to Melbourne and from there just sort of fell from job to job so I worked in spent most of my time in Melbourne working for Peninsula Health which operates Frankston Hospital, Rosebud Hospital and four community health sites and worked my way up to being the manager of the alcohol and other drug treatment services, which was something I aspired to. And then I got there and realized I didn't actually want to do that um, because the middle management just involves signing lots of things, having meetings about meetings about meetings. And it was just really not what I thought it was going to be. And then transitioned out into a senior psychologist role at Monash Health and then quite out of the blue, one of my old lecturers at ECU called me and said, have you thought about full-time academia? We've got a job going here in Perth. So in 2017, packed up the car again and drove back over the Nullarbor and came back to Perth. And so my current role is a split between a little bit of clinical work, a bit of teaching work. So teaching, of course, it's called addiction studies, but it's a bit of a misnomer because we don't really talk about addiction that much. It's more ethnopharmacology. It's uh, human relationship with drugs, behavior change, not just for addiction, but for all behavior. And we train students up in how to do basic counseling skills and also understanding policy 
So we've set up, uh, since I've been in, at ECU, the students there have set up a chapter for students for sensible drug policy to advocate towards more sensible drug policy here in Australia, both yeah. for psychedelics, but also things like pill testing mm-hmm. and then a research element as well. So I've got sort of my own research program, which I've developed, or even as I was working as a psychologist, I've always been doing a bit of research and teaching on the side, whereas now that's part of my sort of paid work whereas yeah. in the past it was a hobby horse of mine doing a bit of research where now it's sort of 40 percent of my role yeah amazing and i mean a lot of people listening probably actually don't know about what research is happening around australia in terms of particularly in terms of clinical use of substances like mdma and psilocybin can you tell us about what's happening at the moment in Australia? Yeah, so the, in addition to the clinical research, so a lot of the research that I'm doing at the moment involves supervising research students, so honours, masters, PhD students, and it's not clinical. It's often looking at the relationship between psychedelic use and empathy, microdosing. It's cross-sectional research, which is a fancy word for doing surveys online. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Because, you know, it is very difficult to do clinical research in Australia, but there's lots of people using psychedelics and we can tap into that through mechanisms like Facebook and there's a lot of organisations that are interested in the topic so we can get surveys out there and we've been collecting some really good data. We've got an honours student that's just submitted her dissertation looking at mystical states, occasion by psychedelics and pro-environmental behavior which is a really interesting study and i've got a phd student based in south africa where ibogaine a drug that's traditionally used by the Bwati people as part of their initiation ritual it's kind of a psychedelic it's not quite a psychedelic but it's it's used in medicine there to treat addiction and so she's looking at um sort of mapping the conscious the, the state of consciousness that ibogaine you know occasions when people take it and looking at the role and of integration for when people come out of the clinic and, and reintegrate back into their new life mm. and then as you mentioned sort of clinical research so it is really difficult to do clinical research in Australia. PRISM started in around 2011 and has been advocating and trying to get clinical research up since then. The first successful trial that started recruiting participants is at St Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne, where they're looking at psilocybin as a treatment for people experiencing anxiety or depression after they've received a diagnosis of cancer. Mm. And so it's extending research that's already been done overseas at Johns Hopkins, New York University, and in the 60s before it all got shut down, Yeah, uh, which demonstrates that that mystical state that's occasioned by psychedelic drugs can be really helpful in allowing a person to accept their situation and improves their quality of life they're able to talk to people close to them about you know what's happening for them when people have been asked um you know about their family member who's gone through this experience they've said that the connection the social connection is a lot stronger Mm. and so i often say it allows people to die with dignity but it's more than that it allows them to die with and and many and some of them don't end up dying actually which is interesting because obviously stress and the immune system are interrelated but no one's gone as far as to say that there, there might be a link there sure um, but maybe that's something for the future so it, it allows people to to experience this this state where they feel okay with the situation that they are currently in in terms of the diagnosis and and sort of prognosis which isn't often isn't isn't particularly good for them yeah um, so that that was 
recruiting. I think they got up to three participants and then COVID came and everything stopped. And as right. Melbourne went into lockdown and all of that, and it hasn't restarted again. I've been trying to get a trial of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for post-traumatic stress disorder. Up. I mean, in fact, that was what PRISM had always been focused on. The psilocybin study at St. Vincent's was just a happy bonus. Right. Um, so in 2012, we submitted to an ethics committee, rejected it because we were basically replicating the model MAPS was using in the US mm-hmm. and trying to apply it to Australia. And they said, you can't do that. You need to have a university, a hospital. You need to have all these people involved if you want to do this in Australia. Then in 2016, uh, we found somebody that had had an affiliation or an adjunct position at Deakin University. And before it even hit the ethics committee, the deputy vice chancellor of research at Deakin, who's basically the head honcho of research, said, no, nah, not, at, not at our university. Um, then in 2017, I moved to ECU or late 2017. In 2018, I emailed my deputy vice chancellor and just, just flicked a couple of papers knowing that he had a background in medicine. Mm-hmm. And he emailed back saying, why, why aren't we doing this in Australia? And I went, mm. yes. This is, this is the sort of response we want. Yeah. And it's just been a bit of a hard slog forward from that point to, I mean, I've undergone the training with MAPS to do the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. And then it's just been, people have sometimes asked me, you know, for people interested in doing clinical research, what's the one thing you'd tell them? And when I'm having a bad day, I tell them, you need to enjoy doing paperwork because running clinical trials involves a shitload of paperwork, yeah, electronic paperwork and, you know, bureaucracy and working with different different government and institutional bodies and lawyers and all of those people. But we're progressing. Why is it so hard? Why is it so hard to get clinical research done in Australia for things like this? Is it the decades and decades of prohibition culture and the propaganda that was spun, you know, from the 60s onwards? Or um... there's, a lo- there's a lot of reasons reasons it's hard to sort of unpack them one is as you mentioned you know sort of the prohibition and propaganda in addition to that um there's something that's called the pathological paradigm of drug research since that point in time the government funds research that shows drugs are bad and so if we're trying to fund research that show drugs could have therapeutic potential it doesn't fit with that narrative so funding is an issue because of that Right. Um, I think there are more academics, particularly in the last 12 months, that are willing to put their head below the pulpit and, you know, say this is a good idea, we should be doing this. In the past, academics were, particularly senior academics, weren't really putting their hand up to be part of this, where that's that's changing now in Australia. Yeah. And then the bureaucratic process is hampered by them just being illegal drugs. You've got to have a full-on security system and chain of custody to transport any small quantities of MDMA or psilocybin. And in turn, you know, it sort of circles back to the issue of funding. It costs a lot of money then to the research because you're working with these illegal compounds. Yeah. How much money we talk for, you know, say this trial that you want to do in Perth? The Perth trial is an exception. We're running it on a shoestring budget. ECU kicked in 10 grand in 2018 to move forward with the study as some seeding funding, uh, which paid for myself and a co-therapist to do the training with MAPS and also paid for an ethics committee to review the research protocol. Um, which was expensive because we had to go to an independent ethics committee due to the nature of the research. And that pretty much expended by 10 grand. We're working in partnership with a hospital that's providing in-kind support. MAPS are providing the MDMA in-kind. So they're right. for free. That's a fancy word for free. Yeah. So, you know, if we were paying for the MDMA, for, we'd possibly be paying between two and $5,000 for three grams of MDMA for good 
Really? It's called GMP, uh, yeah. Good Manufacture Process. It's a particular yeah. grade of MDMA, and there's there's not much of it around. The storage of it, we're looking into at the moment. Again, it's, it's all about leveraging networks at the moment. So I'm hoping that I've secured a free storage of it with collaborating with another university who's got a, a Schedule 9 safe with some free space in it. And it's often a matter of, I feel like my experience with this, it's always two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back. And it's been a huge learning process all the way from back in 2012 when we put that first protocol into the ethics committee and it bounced back because they said, you know, you need all these other bits and pieces in. It's that same ethics committee we submitted to and got ethics approval from this year. Right. Because we had all those things in place, we'd, we'd done all the learning in 10 years and still like, I continue to sort of learn things as we move along in terms of issues arising uh, that we didn't foresee and then figuring out a way of problem solving and then moving forward and finding the next issue to problem solve. Yeah. It seems to me, you know, in summary, it sort of like requires a lot of people with good intent sort of putting themselves in and their own maybe careers in sort of gray area or a slight jeopardy because they're prepared to say, hey, we want to explore this because we feel it could be good for humanity. What do you think like needs to change about our cultural perceptions to change even, you know, like it's just we're so rigid in this idea of what what is the right thing. And funnily enough, the thing that we're trying to change is what people most need. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. Um, one thing I've learned in the last few years is that Australian culture is particularly conservative. And so if you look at what's happening around the world, there is an incredible amount of research happening at the <coughs> moment um, in the US, in Europe, the UK, North, you know, just North America, Canada. It's, there is a lot of research happening everywhere else in the world, but not much in Australia. And I think the reason for the limitations in Australia is our conservative nature. And it was kind of pointed out to me, I did a podcast with the third wave a couple of years ago after attending a conference in Prague and they said to me you know I thought I thought Australians were all pretty liberal open-minded people and I said well they're the ones you've met traveling they're the ones yeah that, you know have gone out and explored the world actually Australia is a very conservative country and I think for us here in Australia that's been a limitation because if you look if you look at what's happening overseas in other countries just with drug policy reform as well I mean the US elect presidential election there's been a range of additional states that are able to provide medical cannabis, recreational cannabis, decriminalise various drugs. Oregon's moved to allow people to uh, grow magic mushrooms and use them in ceremony once they've done the specified training that's still to be defined. But, you know, within two years in Oregon, you'll be able to access mushrooms in some sort of ceremonial or therapeutic context. Yep. Canada's got recreational cannabis. We're a long way behind the rest of the world, and I think it's because we're just a, a little conservative. Mm. Do you think that, that a lot of that is starting to change though? Like the younger generations in Australia are far less conservative, more progressive because there's been a greater weight on things like travel as a priority. And, you know, I mean, you look at any sort of survey that comes out, I don't know the exact numbers, you can probably tell me, you know, 70% of people have tried MDMA under the age of 30 or something. You know, like there's just huge amounts of people who have experimented and experienced with these, had experiences with these types of It's substances. actually It's actually a lot lower than you'd think. Is Those it? numbers yeah, are, okay. yeah. It, Young people today, in fact, this might surprise you, young people today, uh, you know, aged under 20, have used 
less drugs in their lifetime than any other cohort since we've been measuring this. Really? They drink less than any other cohort than since we've been measuring drinking behavior. And meanwhile, use of cannabis among people 50, 60 and over is at the highest level ever. And so is drinking among that cohort. Yeah, okay. And so our stere- that stereotype, you know, that, that a lot of young people do use drugs, certainly you know, the rates of use are higher among younger people compared to other cohorts, but they're not at like 70%. It's actually... Sure. And it's there's this downward trend that we've seen in the last 15, 20 years. So young people are actually using less drugs and well, alcohol and other drugs than ever. Yeah, okay. I'm glad you corrected me there. I must have been quoting some random poll that I saw in the West Australian <laughs> well, at some point. I think the point, poll you, know. that you might have seen was about pill testing. So 70% of Australians yeah. support pill testing. Yeah. I think, you know, there is evidence that young people and in just the community in general, I mean, I've done a lot of work on pill testing for the past five, ten years, and there is a changing public perception, but I'd say the same with psychedelic drugs. I've done, you know, interviews with shock jocks five, ten years ago, and people calling in really understood the difference between psychedelic-assisted therapy and taking LSD at a festival and having a great time. They really understood that distinction, and they were very supportive of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. So I feel like the community... I feel like another problem in Australia, and I, I don't know if this is a worldwide issue, but certainly in Australia, is that politicians are often out of sync with community attitudes. We saw that with the plebiscite on gay marriage. Yeah. That it's 70% support, but we still had to go and have a vote because no member of federal parliament was willing to actually you know, do what they're paid for and make a decision. I guess on, on, on an optimistic note, I think that's been one of the really positive things of COVID is we've seen politicians all of a sudden have to make some decisions in a hurry. Mm. Um, whereas up until very recently, I felt like a lot of politicians haven't been really making decisions or they just kind of tow the party line and nobody wants to really challenge the party line, even when there's clear public support for it. Yeah, absolutely. How do you feel that you personally are viewed who, you know, has been someone who's been advocating for harm reduction with pill testing for a long time? And as you said, you've been involved in trying to get these clinical trials up and running for 10 years. How has that been for you personally? I remember when I was first studying, it might have been my dad's 50th birthday. And I said to one of his friends, uh, you know, they said, well, what are you studying? And I explained what I was doing. And they said, oh, I've got a solution for drug problems and it only costs 10 cents. It's got a bullet. And uh, I thought, oh, geez, this is going to be a hard slog. As I said, I've, I've done a lot of work with shock jocks, so I don't mind putting myself on the line. There's some people now that I probably would decline an interview with because I have been screwed over a few times. But yeah. generally, even with the shock jock, I'll often, with pill testing, for example, I've done a few pieces on 6PR in the last 12 to 18 months. One thing I've seen is that two interviewers have often had a different position, so one could see some support and one... one less so and then over time i could see their position changing as well so yeah i think there'll be obviously be people that would strongly disagree with the approach that i'm suggesting to take more broadly in terms of drug policy which is an evidence-based approach but that's because they're coming from a moralistic stance Mm -hmm. and my way of often turning that around on someone is to point that out that what they're arguing for actually isn't based on evidence it's just based on ideology
Yeah, and what you're talking about there is uh, what a decriminalisation ap- approach is that what you advocate? For? Yeah, decriminalisation and potentially regulation of, of things like cannabis, like we've seen. See, with cannabis, I, I feel like it's not a question of whether or not cannabis should be legalised. It's about which is the, the best model of legalisation because I'd hate to see something like Colorado, where it's you know really capitalistic model. It's kind of like the alcohol and tobacco industry because it's really hard to crank up the regulation once you've already let the cat out of the bag so it's right. better to start with something that's very he- heavily regulated so an example of a heavy regulation is uruguay where you can only buy cannabis for recreational purposes over the counter at a pharmacy sure yeah so there's different models and so for me it's not a question of when should we do it it's just how should we do it what's what's yeah. the evidence say is the best model and i mean there's there is so much evidence for cannabis and the different you know alkaloids in that that plant that have so much benefit to humans health and all those sorts of things, right? You know, moving on to um, sort of the different psychedelics that, you know, we know exist. Um, And you mentioned Ibogaine previously. What are your views on the different psychedelics? Are there any you view as sort of not good or not safe or anything like that? Well, probably just because you mentioned it, um, Ibogaine's one I'm a little circumspect of because it can be cardiotoxic all of the classical psychedelics bit mescaline through to psilocybin lsd ayahuasca they have all very good safety profiles in terms of both acute toxicity so it's difficult to overdose mescaline is it is possible to overdose on mescaline but it takes quite a lot of mescaline yeah um but nobody's ever died from an lsd overdose there's a recorded case in the scientific literature from the 70s where uh, a couple of people in san francisco i think it was was uh they were having a party they found a stash of white powder they assumed it was cocaine it was the 70s it was lsd they racked up some lines and took about twenty thousand doses each of lsd they ended up in hospital having a pretty difficult psychological time but they didn't have any physiological issues and they were discharged the next day with no i don't know how they were psychologically but physiologically (laughs) they were fine whereas with other drugs uh you know if that had been even mdma um mdma I wouldn't class as a psychedelic per se, but MDMA, there is potential for acute toxicity and with regular heavy use, potential for chronic toxicity as well. Sure. Yeah. Ibogaine, as you say, Ibogaine, right? Yeah. That featured quite heavily in the documentary Dosed, which is where I first saw you, actually. You were speaking after that at the Lunar Cinema in Leaderville here. And watching that documentary, it was really intense for those people listening. The documentary followed a woman from Canada who was a heroin addict. For, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, dependent some, on heroin, yeah. Dependent on heroin, some sort of opioid addiction, you know, tried using um, psilocybin to overcome that, sort of had mild, overcame that sort of in some way, but then kept relapsing, eventually went to a retreat where she did Ibogaine. I mean, it looked like she was just lucid for days and sort of like not even herself, you know. Yeah, it it is, like it's she, a long experience. Yeah. Um. So in addition to LSD is a long experience, so times that by three or four and you've got Nibigain experience. And I guess there are some other newer psychedelic drugs that uh, I guess that you'd still consider that they're classic psychedelics. So Alexander Shulgin developed hundreds of psychedelic compounds. I'm not sure if you've familiar with Shulgin's work, but he's a, he was a psychopharmacologist in the 60s. He was employed by, I think it was Dow Pharmaceuticals, developed herbicide and they basically said, you know, he can do what he wants at work. 
And he said, I want to study psychedelics because he'd had some personal experience and he wanted to understand why psilocybin was slightly different in subjective effect to say mescaline or LSD based on its psychopharmacology. And so he started with mescaline, just kept tweaking this molecule, creating hundreds of new chemicals that he tested on himself in low doses. If they seemed like they weren't toxic, he'd up the dose. If they seemed like they were really interesting, he'd hold a little get together and um, have a few psychiatrists and philosophers all sit around in a group and that they would take it together and he wrote about this in a book called phenethylamines i've known and loved right which contained the recipes dosage information qualitative experiences this was published in i think 1992 and some of those drugs are used in research at the moment doi for example doi is used as a tracer a radioactive tracer um, to sort of look at parts of the brain but it's a very long long acting drug and I've, i've sort of looked after people at festivals that have taken large doses of DO, DOB or DOM, these sorts of chemicals. And because they've got the dosing wrong, you know, they're, 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 they're locked in for a really long time, like 48, 72 hours of full-on psychedelic experience. Wow. And so I don't think there's any bad psychedelics per se. I think it's more about people thinking about what, is the best chemical for them for their intention and what they're planning on doing and so it kind of makes sense actually to take you know doughy at a at a festival that lasts for three days but you probably want to get the dosing right so harm reduction is important as well knowing information about the drug you're taking knowing how to take it in a way that's least likely to cause harm all of those things, once you put them together, means that I, yeah, I don't necessarily see any drug as good or bad. A- any drug, even methamphetamine, it, it's a chemical. It's the way we interact with that chemical that causes harm. We as, mm. we as people. Yeah, I, I'm, and I imagine you know there's a potential for people listening to any type of conversation like this where they're like, oh well, you know they should be illegal and people should just not use them. What do you say to that? Oh, I have so many responses. I don't know <laughs> where to start. Um, hundreds of people die each year in Australia in motor vehicle accidents, and it causes you know huge problems with the environment. We should be in cars, but we haven't. Instead, what we've done in terms of cars is. We've tried to reduce the impact on the environment by changing the way that cars work. We put seatbelts in cars, airbags in cars. We've made roads safer. And so essentially that's what I'm you know, arguing for is harm reduction. That's harm reduction. And in fact, when they first put seatbelts in cars, there was concern in Australia that it was going to cause people to drive faster. And it seems crazy to think that, that, you know, that people would believe that now. But that's what people are saying with things like drug checking, pill testing, that, you know, if you have drug checking, then more people are going to use more drugs. And there's just not the evidence to support that. Yeah. I personally don't drink alcohol, but people enjoy drinking alcohol. Sure, it's it's legal. Some people enjoy using other substances and they don't enjoy alcohol or they don't enjoy LSD or they don't enjoy methane, whatever. I think allowing people to have cognitive liberty and, you know, change their brain chemistry however they choose to as, as a personal choice is a value I hold strongly. Mm. You know, I was having this conversation yesterday on the last episode I recorded with my guest, Tim Guest, and we sort of started talking about this topic of self-responsibility. You know, I actually feel like in society, we have given up a lot of our self-responsibility and or allowed the government to take it away from us. There seems to be this kind of belief in this conversation with people that adults in Australia won't act responsibly if they are given the choice to make their own decisions about that sort of stuff. Yeah, and I think 
partly it becomes a reciprocating cyclical problem because yeah. if you don't give people responsibility, then they don't know how to handle responsibility. And I think one of the problems in Australia in terms of our drug use culture is it's based on our use, our alcohol use culture. We don't have a great culture of alcohol use. People like to get drunk to get pissed. People like to get messed up. And people then try to apply that to their use of other drugs, be it MDMA or psilocybin, and all of a sudden find themselves in a really difficult position because that's kind of the culture we have. Whereas if you look at other cultures, you know, without even going to places like South America where it's, you know, built into, ayahuasca sort of built into their culture and their cosmology, even if you look at different parts of Europe and the way in which, um, you know, intoxication is frowned upon, the mm. culture is very different. We have a very, and our culture, you know, our, our drug culture in Australia really started very early on in terms of colonisation. There is evidence of some use of psychoactive substances among Indigenous Australians, though I think a lot of it hasn't been documented because of biopiracy, bio really, the concern that, that there's been a lot that has been stolen from Indigenous people. And so I wouldn't like, you know, I'm not going to sort of go into any detail into that. But in terms of the colonisation, uh, very early on in the Australian culture, basically the colony in Sydney at Botany Bay ran out of food. A ship was coming past that had food. They wouldn't sell the food without selling all the rum that was on board as well. And rum basically became a currency in early Australian Sydney. Right. To the point where you know, the police at the time became known as the Rum Corps. They were going around trying to prevent people distilling their own rum because it had become the currency right. of the colony. So our whole culture is built around it. We were founded on the use of alcohol and, and you know, binge drinking basically has been part of our culture since Western colonization of Australia. Mm, yeah. You mentioned some of the native Aboriginal culture and there, there is sort of some evidence of them using psychoactive plants. And I assume you didn't touch on that too much. What you're alluding to sound is like, is that they've kind of kept that secret and sacred. They haven't really shared that openly because of how much has been taken from them. Exactly. So, and yeah. there, there is some, look, there's some that's in the public domain already. So things like paturi. So there's, there's a native Australian plant that produces a nicotine-like compound. There's evidence that it was traded throughout Australia for its stimulant properties, appetite suppressant, could help, you know, in terms of hunting, foraging, all of those sorts of things. But there's a lot more, I think, that we don't know about that's been kept secret for good reason. Mm. An obvious one is the wattle tree and certain types of wattle, which is how DMT is extracted, you know, the plant that DMT is extracted from. And I've heard stories that, you know, they used to sort of wave a flaming smoking wattle bush over women having babies and stuff like that. I'm sure you've heard sort of similar stories to that, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I, and I've, I've tried to respect, I have heard stories of it. It's often come from other Caucasian people mm. um, rather than indigenous <laughs> people. And so True. kind of have, have not tried to explore it too much for respect of that. And, um, you know, even the, there's uh, the Christmas tree in Western Australia is quite a prolific tree if you're driving south or north um, from Perth, you see, particularly at the moment, they're all flowering. I've got a colleague who is an ethnobotanist and he came over to Western Australia, took a sample and wanted to get it analysed because it was suspected that it might contain some psychoactive compounds. And when he took it to the university, he said, we, the university told him, we can't analyse this because 
one, you haven't got permission to have taken it from where you've gotten it from. And two, you need to work with the community. You need to ask them if they want it analysed. We can't just analyse this and find out what's in it. Right. We need to ask the community. Because if we find something that could change medical science or something like that, then you need to ask the traditional owners. They need to have some sort of ownership of mm. um, the, the, the results that we find. Yeah, good point. Yeah, I haven't thought about that. Sort of talking about traditions, you know, a, a lot of the traditions around psychedelics are based in ancient culture and there's a lot of historic literature which points to ceremonies, and, you know, Greek history and you mentioned South America. And, you know, they were revered as medicines and these powerful mystical experiences that they had and can, in, in often um, in cases connection to God as they would call it or, or a goddess. Why do you think that as a modern society, we do not seem to value mystical experiences? I think we've forgotten our own history. Mm. What I find really interesting is with sort of this psychedelic renaissance and renewed interest that people are focusing on, you know, those indigenous South American cultures, North American use of peyote and indigenous Mexican use of psilocybin mushrooms. Sort of looking over there, if we look at our own history and paganism, plants like Datura, Hembane, Mandrake, these are all psychoactive plants that have very powerful psychoactive properties. I wouldn't recommend anybody use them because they're also quite dangerous. They can cause overdose. These were all being used by our culture six, seven, eight hundred years ago. It's like that's all been repressed and mm. potentially, you know, even our own religions have, uh, our own religions, I'm not religious, but um, I say our, uh, but the, you know, the, the popular religions uh, around Christianity, Judaism, Islam have all potentially come from those um, mystical experiences from psychoactive drugs as well but it's like we've forgotten we've either forgotten or we've repressed it we've purposely forgotten about mm. that information and that tradition for some reason yeah do you think that because this this topic is one that i i hold quite close to my heart based on my own personal experiences with psychedelics you know we're talking about clinical trials and uh, legalization so that people can have access to this sort of medicine to help them overcome trauma and all those sorts of things. I just went and did it all by myself, you know, with, with a guide, with a friend, whatever, in other countries and, you know, in Australia as well. It has been those mystical experiences that have, for me at least, changed my experience of life um, beyond just, oh, I overcame that period of depression specifically by taking this psychedelic drug it's so much more than that and so the conversation right now being purely focused on the therapeutic benefits um when do you think it will ever move beyond that you know do you think we need to conquer that first and then move to the next part of well, it well even or? within the clinical trials with psilocybin and well, primarily psilocybin but there's also been some recent clinical trials using lsd they have been measuring mystical states and mystical states are strongly associated with the outcome so as mm. you say it's not just it's not just take this this will fix the problem it's the experience and then you've got a whole bunch of other researchers that are trying to make these drugs non-psychoactive to see if we can create a bunch of antidepressants and anxiolytics that don't have psycho i don't think that's going to work because it's the in my in my personal opinion it is the mystical experience that's it's ineffable. It's difficult to, to describe what it is and why that why it's so important and, and how it is therapeutic. The oceanic boundlessness. So it's been well described. It's been researched. So Rick Doblin's PhD looked at a famous experiment called the Good Friday experiment. I don't know if you've come across this. It's um it was actually when Timothy Leary was doing research. 
think he oversaw the study. He wasn't that involved in this particular study. What the PhD student did was they set up a randomized control trial with paper theologians, people studying theology at Harvard. And on Good Friday, they did a randomized control trial where theologian students were, in, they were either in the basement or upstairs somewhere and half got basically a, like a, a nicotine or a vitamin, a vitamin B as the placebo and the other group got the psilocybin. And Rick followed them up 20, 30 years on and they still said it was the most significant experience, you know, in terms of what they've done in their life. The people that got the, the psilocybin said it was the most significant thing that's impacted them spiritually but also as being one of the most meaningful experiences of their life so it's really shaped their life 20 30 years later still Mm. so i suppose to continue on from that then is how do we get to a point where it is okay for these substances to be used to for me or for you or any other adult being to use them to explore their own human consciousness to explore their own potential not to have to be diagnosed and say oh i i have depression I need this to treat this. I think it's a long way off. Yeah. I think, you know, in a utopian world, absolutely, I agree with it. You know, that model just makes sense in a utopian world, but we don't live in that world. We live in a world where I think that, you know, if we look at different institutions that have a vested interest in not allowing this, um, so you talked about clinical trials, that the medical institution of medicine is not going to easily give up their control over these drugs once they become medicines. I mean, they're not even medicines yet. There's yeah. people researching them. Once they become medicines, and we've seen that with medical cannabis in Australia, the AMA have been, you know, tried to keep control over who can and can't prescribe medical cannabis. Then other institutions such as churches kind of, why go to the priest to communicate to God when you can, um, you know, take a couple of hundred mics of LSD and dial a direct line? I think I'm plagiarizing Huxley or, or another philosopher from the 50s. But there are, so there are a range of institutions that have a vested interest in, in not allowing that to happen so even though we seem to be living in this wellness culture mm. in which that would be part of understanding you know it's the holistic wellness there are a lot of barriers for us to be able to be in a society where that's not only okay and not stigmatized but permitted and sanctioned mm. what would be required to overcome those institutions is it like politicians standing up to that is it you know who has the control ultimately <sighs> you, ask, you ask some very hard questions. Um, <laughs> I'm just curious to know the I answer. Kinda, I kind of <laughs> did my PhD on this, and it's uh, the, the looking at the way in which institutions control the narrative around drugs. Yeah, and the institutions have a self-serving interest in maintaining power, mm-hmm. and so they're not going to let go of power. So I don't know what the simple answer is because there isn't one. There isn't a simple answer. Politics is an institution of itself. They want power. Everybody in society, our society, struggles to maintain the status quo because the status quo maintains their power relationship over other people in society. And so it's going to take, you know, it's it's, it's some sort of paradigm change to break away from the current situation in which we have all these institutions that are trying to fight hand over cuff to to be in control of what's happening in in the country and and in the world. Mm. That sort of leads to an interesting conversation because, you know, I've always joked with friends. It's like the people who are most opposed to psychedelics are the ones that need it the most. (laughs) You know, the the institutions grappling for power need it the most 
to realize that they don't need to have the power in in that way that almost if we were to future project does kind of lead us to a, a situation where if like what would the whole world look like if legalization on everything was was around and everyone could freely take psychedelic you know and everyone was able to access those mystical experiences and have that profound sort of experience and connection with themselves and other people what would the world look like do you think well for one if you look at all the religions one of the main tenets is the golden rule do unto others and if you've had a mystical experience then you do unto others because we are all one and that's what we're talking about about oceanic boundlessness being interconnected you know you would think on one hand it would lead to a you know a healthier society however the skepticist in me says that they've also seen psychedelics aren't a panacea Mm -hmm. uh, the Manson family took psychedelics and it didn't do them a lot of good. In fact, it just created a cult in which, you know, they committed atrocities. And there, there are a number of examples like that. There's mm. the, the, the family in Melbourne was another cult um, in which they stole children and inducted them into the cult. So these drugs, again, the, the drug is neutral. It can be used for good or bad. It really depends on um, set and setting. So the environment the person's using it in but also the person's set because something I've, I've observed over the last 10 years where I've been really interested in this area is there's a subset of people that become interested in not just the topic of psychedelics but the experience of psychedelics and part of the mystical experience is ego dissolution but I see a very small proportion of people where it almost consolidates their ego and they walk away from the experience going, I know the answer now. Yeah. And then they try to tell everybody what the answer is. But, you know, you, sure. you won't understand the answer. You know, you need to drink high or you need to take this or whatever it is that they're using. And yet they keep going back for more. They keep going back to that experience. Almost, even though there's not really any physiological dependence, but there's almost a psychological dependence where they keep going back to it. And, and they're really sort of stuck in this idea that they're going to change the world by continuing to drink ayahuasca or take mushrooms or whatever it is. And so, you know, as a, I guess, a, a, a contemporary example, I don't know if you gave Donald Trump psychedelics, whether it would make him a better person. It may yeah. actually make him a nastier person. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because, yeah, I understand that. I still kind of have this belief that on the whole, we are living in a society where the majority of people have good intent and don't want to do harm to other people. So if the majority of society had access to it, maybe we'd have a more polarized or more extreme <laughs> society. Yeah, it could, it could do all kinds of, you could do thought experiments. It could create all kinds of strange situations like that where, yeah. you know, you got group, you got the, you could end up with this weird society where, you know, it's the mushroom people versus the ayahuasca people because they all know different truths. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's so many interesting <laughs> thought experiments you can do with this. But essentially, I don't think it's, I think, I did just go back to the point that it's the, the, psych, the, the chemical, whether it's a psychedelic or any chemical, is never the panacea. It's, uh, you said intention, you know, if people have to have good intention. It needs to happen within a supportive environment with supportive people around or even if you know the person's on their own but the environment needs to be supportive for the person to be able to have not only a mystical experience but something that's positive because there are people that have very strong mystical experiences like this subgroup i mentioned before they've kind of realized that all the answers to the world but they've got a family, a wife, three kids, they're, they're not able to sort of look after their family because they're so busy drinking ayahuasca. So, um, yeah, yeah there, there's, definitely, there's definitely caveats to 
psychedelics and them not necessarily being any sort of panacea to our world's problems. Mm, yeah, you sort of have to, uh, it's kind of like that Zen Buddhism, um, you know, what you do before enlightenment, chop wood, what you do after enlightenment, chop wood, whether or not people subscribe to that or not. Yeah, and I think people that get the most benefit from psychedelics do a lot of work and preparation and integration. And mm -hmm. so it's not just the experience in and of itself, it's the experience in the context of the discipline and preparation and intention and integration that all comes together to lead to positive personal growth. It's mm. not, if you just give someone a psychedelic, they're not necessarily going to have positive growth. So I've seen, seen that doing harm reduction, providing harm reduction services at festivals, essentially trip sitting people that have found themselves in a difficult position because you know, their intention was to go to a festival and have some fun. And all of a sudden it's brought something up or they're having a, a spiritual emergence or something is happening and they're finding it really difficult to manage that. Mm. There was something else that you said in there as well with the, you know, like the enlightenment, um, what do you do before enlightenment, chop wood, what do you do after enlightenment, chop wood that um, resonated with me. I'm just trying to think what it was. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> it'll come, it'll come. Yeah, back. yeah. I've heard anecdotally a lot of people sharing their experiences and you hear these kind of experiences with people on psychedelics. They're like, I, I could, you know, I was tapping into the quantum field and I was able to move things with my mind and stuff like that. Or just, it's like sort of really crazy. What would it sound like? crazy things is there any this is quite a funny question is there any research i don't even know why i'm asking this are you doing any research or is there any research or has there been any research done on anything like that that would the, the paranormal uh, i think is what you're yeah of paranormal to, or yeah. like those extreme sort of spiritual experiences i'm not aware of any research yeah. <laughs> that, that's confirmed anyone's experience yeah. you know i don't know what benefit we would have from it but yeah, yeah. You know, i've spoken to lots of people that have had shared experiences where you know it's been quite crazy stuff and it's not really explainable through traditional physics but other than their anecdote there hasn't been as far as i'm aware of any research done into that yeah i think what i was thinking before was in terms of the chop wood before chop wood after is something that's happened in the past and this is ramping up is there is really this interest in psychedelics at the moment that's really ramping up i think michael pollan's book contributed to that in a positive way but as people have become more and more interested in this field and more and more people are getting interested in it that's why i keep saying psychedelics are not a panacea because people get over enthusiastic about it and as somebody that was as sort of an observer of what was happening with medical cannabis in australia 10 years ago i kind of can see i'm in the middle of it now where instead of mm. observing it being in a similar sort of situation where people see it as a potential panacea people want to get into you know become a psychedelic therapist without really thinking through what that involves and um you know will be a facilitator of you know well-being centers and things like that there's just so much enthusiasm at the moment i think what i would like to do is just temper that enthusiasm just a little bit by saying that this isn't a panacea mm. that it can create very challenging experiences for people yeah um you know that are wanting to go out and try it and to, you know to make sure people have done their research yeah and if you want to be a psychedelic therapist you need to be prepared to be able to sit with someone for eight ten hours and you know sit with them through 
that experience. For me, the most eye-opening part of my, it's not even my training, but my experience was doing the harm reduction work at festivals and sitting with people for six hours. We're doing six hour shifts at a four or five day festival and then you'd hand them over to someone else. For me, it was uh, humbling because I went in there pretty, with quite a big ego. I, I'm a clinical, clinically trained psychologist. I know all about psychedelics. And the first person I looked after, someone, a rover had brought him in and found him face down in the dirt, eating dirt. And so I was, um, you know, cleaned him up. Eventually his friends found him in the, the trip sitting chill area and confirmed that he'd just taken LSD. So it was just, so physiologically he was fine. And when he presented, he could say one word and that was love. His facial expressions, he kept, you could see these waves of emotion. I couldn't tell whether mm. it was ecstasy or pure agony because he couldn't communicate. And I realized at some point during that experience that all of that knowledge that I had was meaningless. All I needed to do for the next six hours was just be present with this person and just hold space with that person for that period of time. Mm -hmm. I actually had to hand him over and Unfortunately, to somebody else who, as he was just starting to come out of it, but it really taught me, you know, I just see so many people so enthusiastic at the moment that want to take psychedelics, be psychedelic therapists, and I really encourage people that, that are looking at that to just go into the real world and look for experiences like that that are out there to experience and see where things go pear-shaped. Doing the MAPS training was incredible. Seeing MDMA basically much more like a psychedelic experience where people with complex trauma were experiencing a transference process where they thought Michael Mithoffer, the, the male psychotherapist, was their father who'd sexually abused them and was telling them basically some very strong words were said to Michael. I've never seen anything like that in mm. any of my clinical practice. I mean, even I've seen some weird stuff, trip sitting people, but that again took it to another level. And it just made me really reflect on how challenging the work can be, whether it, that's as a psychedelic psychotherapist or as somebody that wants to sort of facilitate wellness ceremonies and things like that that it, it, things can go things can get really full on and i think the the enthusiasm needs to be tempered with some of that real life exposure so that people might just slow down a little bit and go oh not sure if i do want to take psychedelics now or, or maybe i need to do some more research before i do this or maybe i need to start at a lower dose or whatever yeah. it is but just just slow everything down a little bit because none of it's going away. Yeah. It's, it's, all, it's all still going to be there tomorrow. When I speak to people like yourself, a lot of, I guess, my key message that I'm trying to sort of weave into it is just, everybody, let's just slow down a little bit and let's just calm down and be aware of the potential implications of this. Like you're asking that question, what if, what if we just, leave, what if tomorrow everything was legalized and everybody could access these drugs it could lead to all kinds of weird and strange weird and strange worlds i'm not sure that our current society is actually ready for that mm, yeah and perhaps you know if it was legalized and we're not ready for it most people would just would keep doing what they're doing now and somebody would be like no i'm not gonna do i'm not gonna take it and well, i mean look know. what if you look at why psychedelics were banned it was because you know basically we could end up with a similar situation where we legalize it and then we have to ban it again because mm of concern about all of those institutions that I talked about, essentially that's what shut it down. It was the institutions were concerned, be them um, churches, politicians, 
they thought that psychedelics were going to lead to the dissolution of society as we know it. And so if tomorrow everything were legalised, I think we would probably go down a similar path because we haven't kind of gotten off that path yet. Yeah. That's still happening now. Still, That's what's kind of what's preventing it from happening. So if it were legalised, then I think it would all be put back into a box after there was some crazy media reporting about, you know, uh, like there was in the, in the 60s, you know, about the, the one person, the one in one million person that had a particularly negative experience yeah and we saw that in the netherlands most recently so as people might know in the netherlands up until five ten years ago you could buy psilocybin mushrooms you can still get truffles there because it's a loophole the reason psilocybin mushrooms were banned and why you can only get the truffles now in the netherlands was because of a famous case where I think it was a British teenager that was, you know, his father was well-to-do, possibly an MP, I don't know. Uh, I think he uh, he might have uh, fallen out of a balcony or something tragic happened. He died, and then all of a sudden, what do we do when something bad happens? We ban it. That's, that's kind of our response at the moment. Yeah, yeah, I hear you on that, and um, I think it's a really interesting point of view. I think almost kind of relating it back to my own experiences, there's a lot that I would say I, I wouldn't recommend doing that. You know, to people like, yeah, I know I went and did that and I was just over in Hawaii by myself traipsing through a, a like the jungle effectively with barefoot on mushrooms. Like, you know, and I had some crazy experiences. It got really hard, managed to deal with it and process whatever came up. But it's like, I wouldn't recommend you doing that, you know, because it's, it's not everyone would come out of those kind of experiences on top. And there's many situations that in the past I've put myself into where, you know, where things could have gone wrong. Um, and I, I have seen patients where yeah. they have had PTSD as a result of a bad psychedelic experience. Yeah. So it definitely can go wrong and, yeah. you know, people can be have long-term harm. And, you know, we, we talk about all of these positive, there's so many positive psychedelic stories at the moment in the media because of the clinical research and everything that's going on. But there are still, and, and my concern is that as we continue with that narrative, and we continue talking about the medicalization of it and people become increasingly aware that these are potentially therapeutic. Desperate people will do desperate things. Mm. And so if I have chronic depression or complex PTSD, it's not responding to a treatment, then I'm going to be more likely to try to go out and find these compounds in an illicit environment. Even if we, we were able to in Australia to, you know, the, the TGA is currently considering rescheduling psilocybin and MDMA. If they, even if they, I doubt they're going to decide to reschedule it as a medicine. We'd be the first country in the world to do it. Australia is usually not the first country in the world to do that sort of thing with drugs. Yeah. But even if they were, for most people, it wouldn't make that any difference because we're not talking about mushrooms. We're talking about synthetic psilocybin and, and synthetic, uh, synthetic MDMA, which has to be produced in, you know, to a very high standard. And if we look at medical cannabis in Australia, it's extremely expensive. It's getting more easy to access but it's very expensive and it's because of those stringent manufacturing requirements so we look i mean it's it's crazy in australia at the moment we have all these companies growing medical cannabis that are exporting it we most almost all other than one company i'm aware of that is growing and selling in australia we're importing it all and the reason it's so expensive it's like the illicit drug market except basically it's being you know it's changing hands so many times and everybody puts their mark up on it unlike illicit drugs you know it's not necessarily being cut or anything like that but it's essentially changing hands if you try and apply that then to to mdma assisted psychotherapy or, or psilocybin assisted psychotherapy 
you're adding in the costs of psychiatrists and psychologists. So it would absolutely, I, I did some back of the envelope sort of maths. I worked, worked out that it would cost about $20,000 per person um, to, to be able to access MDMA-assisted psychotherapy should it become a medicine tomorrow. Wow. So, so what you end up with is a similar situation with medical cannabis where um, the most recent data shows, uh, you know, in the last 12 months, in 2019, in that 12-month period, over just over 1 in 10 Australians smoked pot. Of that 1 in 10 that smoked pot, 6.7% only used it for medical reasons. Of that 6.7%, 1 in 100 had a script. Yeah. The other 99 in 100 didn't. Yeah. And so I worry that as we continue this narrative, because I've just kind of seen what's happened with medical cannabis, the difficulties people have had accessing it, people being prosecuted for growing their own and then you know, tr to try to um, you know, manufacture their own oil and being done for manufacture of drugs... Um, I just worry that as we continue down this narrative that it's going to maybe at the end point in 20 years from now, we will see the benefits. But in the short term, we may see more problems along the way. Mm, yeah. What, what is the, the difference between, um, if, if any difference, um, between, uh, you know, natural, uh, naturally occurring psilocybin and um, synthetic psilocybin? Absolutely none. Nothing? Nothing, no. Yeah, right. Because I know there's, you know, there's kind of this... Um, you hear the word synthetic and you go, oh, that can't be good or, you know. It's called the, it's called the, uh, the appeal to nature logical fallacy. That's, yeah. That synthetic is bad and natural is good. Yeah. Because there is plenty of natural things that are really bad, like asbestos. Yeah. <laughs> um, cyanide. There's plenty of natural things. So the idea that something synthetic is somehow less good than something that nat is natural is a logical fallacy. There's no evidence for that. There's lots of plenty of synthetic things that are extremely safe and don't cause, you know, problems to the environment. And then there are other synthetic things like natural things that are toxic to us and toxic to the environment. Sure. Do they, to, to create um, synthetic psilocybin is there is it some sort of extraction process no or it's, it's just actually just manufactured just in just pure synthesis yeah, yeah wow. it's 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 cheap it's easier and cheaper to, to synthesize psilocybin than it is to actually extract it from the mushrooms themselves yeah of course fascinating there you go well i think uh we've covered a lot was there anything else you wanted to add to that conversation before we, before we wrap it up no, I think somehow we managed to navigate through probably the key messages I had in my mind coming here, which was around just tempering people's enthusiasm a little bit with all of the hype around psychedelics and people wanting to become psychedelic therapists and being aware of, you know, you said most people have good intentions. There are people out there that don't have good intentions and they're looking to mm. leverage this as an opportunity to, to make money, to rip people off. So, you know, people just need to be cautious, smart, just slow things down a little bit, look into things. I think that was probably a, a key message that I had. And the other one was sort of what we finished on, which was... With all of this interest, like with medical cannabis, where's it going and is it a good place that we're going to get to and how, do, how are we going to sort of navigate that journey? Mm, yeah, awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a really interesting conversation and I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me.